Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Manshramani hosted on May 28, 2021 with Bjorn Lomborg. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so thanks everybody for joining. Uh, I am absolutely excited today to have Bjorn Lomborg with me. Uh, we're gonna have a conversation about his most recent book, but frankly, it's gonna be bigger, broader, wider than just that. Uh, so his most recent book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. It's a great read. Uh, I've, uh, I've read it. I've noted it. I've scribbled on it. I've destroyed the book, uh, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> but I've, uh, I really enjoyed it. And it's very logical, which is what I appreciate. Um, and, uh, you know, before that, I, Bjorn and I were just talking earlier about the fact that his first book, uh, The Skeptical Environmentalist, I read this book in, oh, geez, I think it had to be 2001, maybe 2002, right as I was starting grad school. And uh, we were laughing about the fact that there's, a, uh, there's an image in here that Bjorn took a lot of time to get right. Uh, and I, for whatever reason, remember it. So I'll just show it because some people may appreciate it. It's an image that shows the biggest cube at the bottom is total solar energy produced in the world. And then it goes into smaller, smaller, smaller cubes. And the top cube is annual world consumption of energy. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, so before we get started uh, in our conversation, let me just remind people of the last few uh, webinars I've hosted that there are replays available for uh, here in this quote unquote summer series. Uh, so last week, or sorry, excuse me, uh, two weeks ago, I had Grant Williams, uh, who was one of the co-founders of Real Vision, the online media enterprise that's focused on financial uh, investors. Uh, but he also hosts his own podcast. He's been a financial commentator for more than 35 years, uh, really thoughtful, insightful commentary where we discussed gold, uh, the dollar, inflation, deflation, commodities, and what have you. Uh, before that, I had Chad Foster, who uh, went blind at the age of 20, uh, and he talked about navigating uncertainty and trying to live life despite having this disability imposed on him, and he talked about the fact that he skis. He's a, he's a blind skier and goes down black diamonds and sort of the teamwork and inspiration behind some of that. Uh, before that, we had uh, former Congressman Mike Rogers, uh, who was the chair of the permanent, excuse me, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, he's the guy who spent $75 billion a year of the US money on intelligence gathering globally. He's also the person who ran around the world to convince the UK, uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand that we cannot be using Huawei 5G equipment. Uh, he's the one who spurred that whole debate. Uh, and so that was a fascinating conversation. Uh, of course, we want to uh, encourage people to buy my book, which came out around the same time as False Alarm. So uh, that's Think for Yourself. And then as of this morning, I'm pleased to say I've confirmed that next Wednesday at 11 a.m., I will be hosting Hakeem Idris and his wife, Rushan Abbas. Uh, Hakeem is the author of a book that uh, came out recently, uh, I think just a, a couple of months ago, called Menace, China's Colonization of the Islamic World and Uyghur Genocide. Uh, and his wife, Rushan, actually runs the Campaign for Uyghurs, which is a group here in the United States that is working on bringing uh, light to the, to the Uyghur genocide. 
and she's been working with several members of the U.S. Senate and Congress, etc. Uh, so we'll have both of them on next Wednesday at 11 to have a discussion here. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited about that. Uh, Rashawn's got some emotional personal stories too. Her sister was uh, has gone missing after she became critical of the Chinese regime. And so there's some uh, stories that I hope she'll be willing to share with us about that. Um, so in any case, that's uh, the advertising. More importantly, Bjorn, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Bacon. So I'm curious, you're growing up. Do you think you were going to be an, uh, an environmental commentator? Do you think you were going to write about these big grand challenges? Is this what you knew you were going to be when you were two years old? Like, what was the story? No, no. Well, I don't think anyone really has, have uh, that, that sort of sense of what they really want to do. Uh, for a very long time, I felt like I wanted to be something academic-y. Um, and uh, yeah, I liked school. I liked sort of you know, studying. Probably also I was a little awkward. So uh, you know, school is always a good place to hide in that way. Yeah. Uh, but 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 I think it was it was only really when I started college. I've, I I actually went to uh, college in the in the U.S. for a year. Uh, at University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, right out of uh, high school. It was an exciting experience, but it wasn't, you know, all that intellectually stimulating. So okay. I was thinking, well, but now I'll go back to Denmark and, you know, I'll learn all this stuff. And then I realized, no, same stuff. You know, a lot of people trying to get through and not all that much enthusiasm. It had very much that sense of sausage factory. Yep. Uh, and and, um, and I, uh, I, I had the good fortune of meeting uh, a guy who later turned out to be my mentor. Uh, he and his wife were both teaching at the, uh, at the University of Aarhus, the second largest city in, in, in Denmark and the second largest university. Uh, and, and, you know, he was, he was like so totally well-read. He just know everything. And it was just, it was like, yes, that's how I want it to be. And he was, you know, I'd always had that vision of, of uh, you know, the, the the TV series you see from from uh, Oxford or Cambridge where you know, the the professor is smoking a pipe and and you know six smart students are 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 you know making uh, incredibly intelligent conversation about Plato that kind of thing uh, and and it felt a little bit like that okay. and, and so I I felt for the longest time that I wanted to you know be an academic. I wanted to, uh, you know, do important work. My my PhD thesis was on uh, on computer simulation and game theory. Uh, okay. So, you know, realistically, it would have been read by you know ten or fifteen people, and I was excited about that. You know, it was fun uh, to do stuff that I thought was really, really fun and really interesting, yeah. and you know, imagine getting paid for it. Yeah. And, and so, what really sort of took me on this tri uh, trip. Um, was the fact that when I started teaching at University of Aarhus, uh, after I, having been at University of Copenhagen, got my PhD and all that stuff, um, I wanted to make it more interesting for these guys than it had been when I was at the university. Uh, so I started a study group. We you know, did lots of different interesting stuff. I, I did a lot of sort of extracurricular things where you wouldn't get any grades, but you just you know, get a lot of fun out of it. Yeah. And one of those things, just one of them, was the fact that I'd read an interview about Julian Simon, who was an American economist uh, yep. in Wired magazine uh, back in 1997, uh, where, where he basically said, you think everything is going to hell with the environment? And yep. it's not. 
Stop. And, and you know, I, I used to be a greenpeaser. I had the poster on my wall, not out in the rubber boat, but you know, I had the poster <laughs> in my wall with it. You know, only when they've caught the last fish and felled the last tree will they realize they can't eat gold. And you know, that whole that whole sort of set up. Uh, so I felt like that can't be true. And, and this, this is Julia, the, the one who wrote the book, The State of Humanity? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. So, so um, he said one thing, though. I taught statistics at the, uh, to uh, uh, undergrads uh, at the university. Uh, and, and one of the things I told him was, you think you know a lot of things, but actually statistics very often, you know, if you actually look at the data, you'll often realize you're wrong and you should look at the data. And Julian Simon said, look at the data. And that really annoyed crap out of me. So I figured, all right, I'll, look, we're going to make the, you know, I, so I, I ordered his book, uh, State of Humanity. I, uh, and, you know, I flipped through it. It looked sound. So, you know, it, it, the feeling was, all right, I'm going to gather all my smartest students. We're going to prove him wrong. Of course he's wrong, but we'll have fun while we do it. And did you think it was political? Did it, did it come yeah, out? Yeah, sort of, I mean, like my, a right my sort of guy or something. My initial thought was right-wing American, you know, uh, just saying what he'd love to think. Yeah, you know, if you're steeped in in sort of left-wing uh, uh, Europe, I'm I'm probably you know somewhat left-wing in Europe, which is probably outrageously left-wing <laughs> in, in in America. It just felt like, of course, he can't be right, but it'll be fun to disprove him, and that was how we all went into this. And you know, we went through and used all the UN data and all that stuff, and we started realizing. This is not all wrong, <laughs> and and you know at the end of this this half year, I uh, I realized much of what he says, not everything, and there certainly was some you know wishful thinking in his part as well, uh, but much of it was true, and I was like, how come I believe something completely different from what the data tells us? Yeah, you know, the, the sort of very obvious thing is uh, the fact that air pollution in London has been declining since 1890. Yeah, uh, it's now cleaner in London since the medieval times, uh, and it's one of the graphs I have in in, in in my book, and I updated it. And I thought it was a great graph. I love it. But but you know, how come we don't know this? Yeah. And and so this married to another thing that I've been working on for a very long time, namely, there's something wrong about public universities uh, that. You know, we pay all these guys, that uh, used to be me as well, uh, to sit and read books and become very, very clever. But shouldn't you somehow tell everybody else all that smart stuff? And we do that in, in academic articles, but they're, they're almost purposely written in a way that you can't understand them. So my argument was very much, you should actually get your stuff out. So when, when I uh, when I did my PhD, I wrote a, a, a long op-ed about it in, in the most prestigious Danish newspaper. And I got into, uh, you know, sort of the uh, Danish morning radio program, uh, uh, which is also very prestigious. But, you know, I got three minutes be be between two pop songs to explain my my, my thesis. Uh, and, and, you know, my friends said, oh, Oh, that's just one minute per year. Uh, and, 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 you know, it, it, it was a fun experience. And of course, you can't tell all the footnotes, but you can give the gist of what it was that you did. And so when we discovered this thing with Julian Simon, actually, the stuff that we think we know very well isn't. Yep. It's actually a lot of different things that, you know, in many ways, environment just is better. And yep. much of that is caused by getting richer. If you're poor, you, you screw over the environment because all you really care about is making sure your kids are, are, are well. 
But once you get sufficiently rich, you stop uh, chopping down forest. You start saying, I'd actually like to cough a little less. And you figure stuff out. And you also do expensive uh, 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 environment uh, programs because you can afford to. So the, the simple point, so we published this in, in, in four op-eds and again in this sort of New York Times in Denmark. And, and uh, it, it just blew into the biggest debate we've ever had in Denmark. So it was uh, you know sort of uh, for three months, you couldn't really open a paper without reading somebody saying, this is mostly, this is wrong. Uh, and and yeah. us coming back and say, actually, what do you build that on? Here's the data, yada, yada, yada. Yep. And it was a very exciting experience. Uh, and that was really what then I repeated in the, uh, uh, in, in the skeptical environmentalist. And, and you know, I, I kept telling myself for what, 10 years that it's a phase. I'll yeah. do this and then I'll get back to doing, you know, uh, uh, computer simulation and game theory and do the stuff that I was actually meant to do. Uh, so it took me a very long time to realize, well, no, probably this is what this is I'm it. meant to yeah. do. Yeah. It's interesting because I think I remember either reading it or hearing it somewhere, but your father was a florist. Sorry, my father was. Your father was a florist or in the gardening. Yes, industry? yes, yes. And your mother was a school teacher, correct? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. It's almost as if you're in the business of educating about gardening. It's sort of, you know, I always wonder, do, do these things come back in some way on a personal level uh, that you've been exposed in these ways? So uh, it, it makes sense to me from the outside that you're yes, doing yes, what you're doing. Yes. But, you know, uh, in any case, I want to talk to you about your experience after this book was published. I think you were paraded in front of people and accused of lying. Is that right? Yes, sort of yes. Dishonesty, academic yes. dishonesty. Um, yep. This was a big deal. This was, yep. I remember this, uh, that people were saying you're, um, you know, you're not fit for academic service effectively and that you're, yes. you know, sloppy, you're not correct, you're a liar, et cetera. A, talk to us about what that experience was like, but then also like, I mean, you obviously have done fine and been resilient and moved through it, but that has to have left some scars. It, well, if it's left scars, I can't really remember him, but I'm sure right. in some ways it has. Uh, so, so um, when I came out with the book, it, you know, a, a lot of people told me, look, <laughs> the world is not Denmark. Uh, sure, you can have a big conversation about this in Denmark, but it's not going to happen in the world. It's going to be, you know, a little bleep. And, and sure, uh, you know, it wasn't like New York Times was filled with this uh, for the next three months, but it was a much bigger thing for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but, th but the main point was this really became a talking point, uh, 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 skeptical environmentalist. And so a lot of people obviously also saw it as this is the book we have to destroy uh, because in many ways, this is going to screw up. You know, so putting it very, very bluntly, if you worry about the climate, and I think if you worry about the environment, I think there's a lot of good reason for you to do so. The more people are concerned, the more people think this is the end of the world, the more they're willing to spend on this problem, just like any other problem. So, you know, if you think about teachers, teachers unions will tell you schools are terrible. Uh, schools will probably tell you schools are terrible too, because they all want you to spend more money on schools. And likewise, hospitals, you know, doctors, everybody else will tell you health is terrible and we need more money. So it's not, there's nothing, you know, weird or uh, untoward in that sense. But obviously, a book that comes out and says, actually, you've been told a story that's not true. You've been told the story of, uh, uh, you know, the world is ever deteriorating. 
Not true, mostly. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried, but it means we should be worried in a different way. And this matters because we'll get back to that and when we're talking about climate change as well. Yeah. So I think a lot of people want it to uh, make a make an example out of me and crucify me in, in a lot yeah. of different ways. So there were there were some very nasty reviews in in, in Nature, for instance, where they compared me to uh, the Holocaust deniers, uh, that kind of thing. So like, really. Yeah. yeah, and and I've, it's always struck me that uh, there's a saying from from Harvard uh, Law School, but I'm sure it's from other places as well, uh, where they say, yeah, if you have a really good case, pound the case. If you have a bad case, pound the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 when people pound the table really really hard, it sort of suggests that they don't have all that much other stuff to come with. And that was certainly the case with this, uh, uh, this nature. And, you know, we, we did that. We, we'd done the same thing in Denmark. Uh, you know, people come out and say, you're a terrible person. And we would say, I'm sorry, what data set are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, I always tried to talk about what is the data, not, you know, this is not a question about whether you like me or not. This is a question about whether is the data correct or not. Yeah. And, and, well, and that's, yeah, go ahead. No, no, please. I was going to say the contrarian instinct and sort of anything that conflicts with consensus is uncomfortable for people yeah. to grapple with, right? There's yeah. this cognitive dissonance. I've been told my whole life, this is the issue. This is the way to wait. Someone's telling me that's not the case. Like that doesn't feel good. Like, wait, something's wrong with him is the yeah. natural instinct. Yeah. And, and so, um, uh, suddenly some people realized that they could actually, uh, that there was this, Obscure Danish, uh, um, the Danish Committees for Scientific Dishonesty. It sounds a little Orwellian. They were actually done because um, U.S. funding requires there to be an oversight of, uh, of, uh, of uh, scientific dishonesty in natural sciences. And then it crept out from, there, there was a whole review after this case. Um, uh, it crept out just simply because it could and into social sciences as well. And then somebody uh, sent a complaint about uh, uh, my my work. Uh, first, it was this guy who who's actually who has a, a website of lomboris-errors.dk, I think, where he's you know sort of uh, listed all his uh, all the errors he thinks that I've made throughout my life. I think, um, and I, I I haven't actually engaged with that, but he's written a book where we wrote a, co a, a, a counter book, and I've written a lot of you know essays on all the stuff. He, fundamentally, I think he's he's well intentioned. I think he's fundamentally wrong, and, and he often doesn't get what what it is that he's trying to say. He just feels like this is wrong, but that's a little besides the point. And he then manages to get a number of people, for instance, from Scientific American that ran an 11 page uh, um, uh, 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 attack on me. Uh, and I heard about it before. So I asked them, can I be allowed to, uh, to respond? And they were very uncomfortable about that, that I'd found out when they could still have put in my response. But they said, no, uh, for practical reasons, you can only respond six months later. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but so a lot of people actually piled into this and I knew some of the people who were on this board. I've, I've met most of them later. Um, and all of them felt like, you know what, you're probably right about a lot of stuff, but you're probably also wrong about some of the stuff and you really shouldn't be saying that so loud. So we're going to, you know, we're going to do this over your fingers, not too much, but tell you that you should be a little more sort of in your place. And, and if you actually read it, so my, my editor from Cambridge University Press that published yeah. the book, um, 
he later wrote uh, a, a long essay about the whole process. And I think it was very sort of exciting. I don't uh, he compared it and I forget what it was. It was a guy who had, who had uh, written about the second amendment in the U S and, and found that there was a lot more guns around and actually it was much more usual to, to have guns. And one of his major points was that he was using a, a, um, a, a, a an archive in San Francisco uh, and you know, people started talking about, but that burnt in 1905. Um, and, yeah. and so uh, Emory University, I believe that was where he was, launched a very long process to find out. And they had lots of people write up all of it. And they went through all his, uh, uh, his proposals and only said here he was dishonest because he specifically says, I read this paper, but that paper was burnt in 1905 and, you know, wow. stuff like that. And there are lots of other stuff that they felt might not be true, but we can't tell because we don't actually, yeah. So very, very careful deliberation. If you look at what the, the Danish authorities came out with, it was an 11 page paper that basically said lots of Republicans like this. And clearly they also use lots of oil in, in the U S so Bjorn is wrong. Hmm. I'm, I'm, summarizing a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, no, I get it. Surprisingly I get it. very little. And so, and so eventually it was overturned uh, by the ministry uh, and uh, on, on the clause that uh, in Danish law, uh, 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 public uh, servants have to yeah. give a good reason for, uh, for, for making a decision. And they'd forgotten that. Interesting. So Bert, let's, let's take that experience of yours and transition to the current day uh, and your current work. Why is it such a political issue? Isn't this a domain of data? Like, shouldn't we be data grounded to be able to decide where costs are, where benefits emerge, and optimize how we deploy our efforts, our capital, our et cetera, to make the world a better place, right? So I, I think this is lines up with some of your other work, I know that work you did, I think, I forget the exact name, the Nobel Laureate's Guide to Tough Problems or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Um, but, you know, help me understand why is it? Is it just so consensus politically fashionable that one needs to say climate is the biggest, grandest, most pressing challenge of the world and therefore uh, we need to focus on that at all? other costs, like it, it becomes a non-starter to debate it. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit outside of my domain. So obviously I've given thought, but I don't, I'm not an expert in this, but my sense is that certainly in the last 50 years or so, we have almost exclusively learned that the world is getting ever worse in a wide range of different ways. So if you look back in 1972, uh, the first Stockholm conference where, where the UN, the newly formed, uh, uh, we just had Earth Day, uh, you know, uh, uh, rivers catching fire. There, there was a lot of sense of this is not right. Uh, Ehrlich was telling us the world can't feed itself. Uh, uh, um, uh, Rachel Carlson had just told us that DDT would, you know, yep. eliminate everyone from cancer. Uh, and 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 there, uh, the UNEP uh, uh, head told us for the first time the world has ten years, and otherwise we're all going to die. And 
since then, we've pretty much been fed that same line. It's interesting to see what would, you know, right after we saw the limits to growth, uh, 1972, uh, that we we're going to run out of everything. And, and it just felt right, you know, because of stagflation and everything else. It felt like we moved from this wonder experience after the Second World War to the world is in real crisis. And people just felt like this, this sounds right. Back then, we worried about you know uh, uh, supersonic air, airplanes, and we worried about the you know contrails, and we worried about a DDT and many other things. And remember, none of these were unreasonable to be concerned about, but they turned out to be very very small issues. DDT, famously, very very little problem for humans. It has a real ecological uh, impact and it's a good thing we, we uh, you know, reined it in. It's probably not a good idea that we stopped it entirely because it also uh, uh, is a very, very effective uh, target against malaria. And then we moved on, you know, we worried about uh, 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 acid rain in the 1980s. We worried about the ozone layer in the 1990s. And now we're worrying about global warming. And none of these were trivial issues and none of them were totally false. But they were vastly set in a perspective of saying this is the end of the world. So you know, uh, 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 acid rain was probably most predominant in, in uh, the worry in Germany, and a majority of people in 1985 actually believed that by the year 2000, all forest would be gone in in Germany. All forest, not just some or many, but all forest. And of course. By the year 2000, Germany was more forested than it was in 1985 because Germany's rich and they can actually afford to not cut down forest. Uh, and, and and likewise, you know, uh, 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 the ozone layer was a real problem. It was vastly exaggerated. You know, at at worst, it was equivalent to moving what about 125 miles south uh, uh, on the north side of uh, you know because there's more UV light coming in uh, towards the equator. Uh, so yes, it was a problem. And when you do that for you know seven or eight billion people, it does really have an impact. And it's a good idea that we tried to fix it. But the sense that this was going to end the world was also wrong. And yep. now we have global warming, which in some ways is just the the multiplied version of all the other scares that we've had before. It is a real problem. Yep. And and this simple and basic point is, since all societies are constructed to live where they have lived for the last couple hundred years, you know, so Boston is very well equipped with cold, and Miami is very well equipped with heat. Uh, both of these cities would have trouble with the climate moving either in a colder or in a warmer direction, simply because it would strain the infrastructure. That's the basic reason why global warming is a problem. Yes, there is also some other stuff, but that's the main part of the cost. Yeah. But this is something that humans deal with very, very easily. You know, we know how to do we, we know how to do that. That's why, for instance, much of the, uh, uh, the US, uh, south of, of the US has become so much more uh, industrious because you've got air, air conditioning. And what we're gonna see over the rest of the world is that most countries around the world are gonna have air conditioning. You know, uh, 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 Singapore is a great example. 99.9% .9 of all places in Singapore has air conditioning because they're rich. And likewise, you're going to see that in Africa and elsewhere. I'm not saying that this is going to you know, magically make all problems go away, but it's going to make most of the problems much, much fewer. And, yeah. and that's, so, that's the conversation that we need to have. We don't because we're, we're sort of slated to believe everything is getting worse. 
Well, Bjorn, so one of the criticisms and folks, uh, I've got someone who texted me this question and said, but doesn't that alarmism generate the response that makes the, the, the phenomenon manageable? And that without the alarmism, maybe you wouldn't have gotten the response that made it manageable. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. isn't it sort of problematic to say, oh, well, look, you said this was going to end the world and it, the world didn't end. Well, maybe the world didn't end because you said it. Yes. So there's definitely an argument for that. And, and this is not surprisingly also an argument that a lot of the people who have been uh, 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 making these arguments. So, for instance, uh, Paul Ehrlich, who has been famously wrong about pretty much everything he said, uh, is, is also saying, well, but because I said it, people stop and that's why I'm wrong. So actually I was right in being wrong. Uh, and, and there is some logic to it, but the problem here is if we allow teachers to tell us that the schools are terrible, so you need to spend more money here. If we allow the hospitals to tell us, you know, healthcare is terrible, you need to spend more money here. If we allow environmentalists to say the environment is terrible, spend more money here. The military to say we're all going to die because of nuclear war unless you spend more money on us and everyone else. It ends up as a conversation of who can shout the loudest or perhaps more clearly, who has the cutest animal or the most, uh, you know, crying babies, the stuff that gets your attention. Chances are we're going to end up focusing on a few things. And if you look at what happens with global warming, we focus almost exclusively on cutting carbon emissions, whereas many people will say, the reason why I want to cut carbon emissions is because I saw somebody in, you know, for instance, the Philippines being hit by a terrible uh, typhoon, as they call it, or hurricane yeah. uh, there. And you got, you know, my mind blows up when people say that. If you really want to help people, with hurricane impacts in the Philippines, you want to get them out of corrugated roofs and, and you know, slum cities. You want to make them rich. That's what's going to help them not, not drive your car tomorrow. And, yeah. and the whole point here is to recognize if we scream at each other, spend money on healthcare, spend money on environment, spend money here and there. If we end up just focusing on the sexy causes, it is very likely that we'll do very, very poorly across yeah. the world. Well, it's interesting because I also think if we bring it back to some of your data and the way you think about it, one of the most powerful images I think I've seen you present and share was you talked about, I think it was a graph you showed that showed damages because of hurricanes in Florida. And it was, a, I think it was a dollar based graph. And so you see a flat line that eventually explodes and it's US, maybe it's US because it included, yeah, Katrina, that included Katrina, et cetera. And then you show a picture of... Uh, you know, Miami Beach, 1927, and there's like two buildings on it. And then you show a picture of Miami Beach today and there's high rises galore there. And so I think you call it the bullseye effect, but maybe describe how that data description leads to certain conclusions, which while technically true, lead people to be more alarmist than they might necessarily need yeah. to be. So, so fundamentally, uh, if, if you have a place where lots more people are, naturally with much more stuff naturally you're going to have much bigger damages whenever a hurricane hits so even if the hurricane frequency remains the same if you have nobody living in florida uh, back in 1900 and you have tons of people living there now you will have a much bigger impact and and you know if, if you just do the numbers it turns out that the coastal communities of florida have increased 67 fold over the last 120 years okay. since 1900 Yep. compared to the US, which has only increased fourfold. So if you look at the damage cost from hurricanes 
in Florida, you will see a dramatic increase. And, and uh, if, if you look at what most people see, they look at the absolute size, of course, damages are going to increase because you've gotten much richer. You have much more stuff that can be damaged. But even if you correct with inflation, even if you correct with GDP, you're still missing the point that most of the GDP gets from the inner side of the US, the just four times US, but not the 67 times in, in Florida. If you actually adjust it for that, it turns out that you're not seeing a signal, which is also what we would expect. Uh, yep. Because we have not seen an increase in either numbers of hurricanes or number of strong hurricanes hitting the U.S. And we need to know this, but it's so much easier to just jump ahead. So yep. uh, the biggest, yep. uh, and this was done under Obama, it's a very, very good I, you know, sort of uh, uh, idea if you want to get people scared. Number of billion dollar uh, damages, you uh, inflation adjust, but of course you forget to adjust for the fact that there's much more stuff to be harmed, and then especially for hurricanes, that there's also a lot more people living where hurricanes hit, uh, and you need to adjust for both. And if you do, you don't see an increase, but if you don't, you see a dramatic increase, and so you get the headlines of you know uh, uh, Washington Post and others telling us this is what happens with global warming. No, this is what happens when you get rich. Yeah, well, it's interesting because actually one of the questions here that came in is uh, a woman who said, I saw your article in the Times of India that carbon taxes will be a burden on developing nations. Um, you know, comment on that, but she specifically asking, do you think thorium molten salt reactors could be a solution to provide clean energy to developing nations that have a need to fuel or increase their wealth and quality of life, uh, et cetera? So, um, so to, just two brief things. So a lot of people are now starting to talk about when 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 we did a little bit of of, of climate policy, it you know it was affordable for most people. Sure, it cost a little more, but we're fine and it feels makes us feel good. If we're now starting to talk about getting to net zero by 2050, which both Biden and the EU and many others are talking about, remember it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, it's, spoiler alert. It's just impossible to imagine that this is going to happen. Uh, it's going to be phenomenally costly. But what will happen then is that you will outsource most of our industry to countries that don't have carbon taxes, basically. So one way of thinking about that, and it makes sense in an economist kind of way to say, well, then put up border taxes or carbon tariffs. Basically have China, if they produce stuff, they have to pay the same carbon tax as you would have had to pay if you'd produced in the US or in Europe. It makes sense. Uh, the EU actually is on record for saying, uh, our, this is existential issue for us. Our industry won't survive unless we do this, which gives you a sense of, and a clue of how damaging this is gonna be once it really gets go, uh, rolling. The problem with that is it's really just a way for rich countries to be uh, a protectionist because you're forcing industries back home into the US and into Europe. And in that way, you basically make the developing countries pay for developed country climate policy. Obviously, that's wonderful because you know, Biden and the EU gets to be saviors and the poor world gets to pay. Now, that only works if the poor world says, okay, of course, they're not going to do that. What we're likely going to see is a split uh, between the rich world having their own trading organization and the poor world, that is China, India, and everybody else, having their own 
uh, trading regime. That will not only make the world much poorer, but it will also basically fracture much of what would have driven our wealth uh, creation in the rest of the century. It's a terrible way. You're basically having much higher cost uh, uh, to the uh, 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 molten salt uh, reactor. Uh, the, si the simple answer is we don't have good technologies to go net zero right now. That it. could be one of them, uh, but fundamentally, and that's the point that I keep arguing, and we, you know, we ran a, a, a series of, of, uh, of, uh, um, of uh, processes where we had more than 27 of the world's cli top climate economists and three Nobel laureates look at what can you do. The simple point is we don't have the technology yet. You should invest in technology development because if you could develop for instance, a nuclear reactor that's cheaper than fossil fuels. It's not there today. They're typically much more costly. But if you could, and that's what Gates and others are doing, if you could do that, you would have made the whole point moot because everybody would just buy sure. that reactor and we'd basically be done. And likewise, it could be that we could find a, a great way to do solar with battery and basically get cheaper than fossil fuels. Then everybody would buy that. The point is we're not there yet and we're not even close to being there yet. And that's why we need to have a conversation about, are you gonna to try to force everyone to do it in the costly way? That's always gonna fail. Or are you gonna focus on technology and actually get people to do this through technology? That's the way that we've solved most of the problems. Gotcha. Now it makes, makes a ton of sense, Bjorn. So uh, I've got a lot of questions that have come in, but I wanna interrupt our conversation by asking a question that I ask all of my guests, which is, do you have a favorite book and then I'm also going to ask you about a movie and miniseries. So uh, that you would recommend, it could be favorite, it could be one you recommend, yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> uh, well, so, uh, I mean, uh, uh, sort of recent books, I think Steven Pinker's uh, Enlightenment Now yep. is, a, is a very good, it's in, in many ways, you could say it's a follow-up to the skeptical environmentalist. It's very much the same thing. Uh, yep. You know, trace of uh, uh, humanity's broad adventure uh, throughout history and show with data that things are actually on almost all points, not all, but almost all points getting well, much, much better. You know, I've talked with him about Better Angels, his, his, his book before, yeah. which is pretty big, but I mean, sort of, we hear all the headlines about violence, it's horrible, this and that, but actually the data says we're a lot less violent. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Okay, good. Enlightenment now, I scribbled it down, good. How about a movie or miniseries? <laughs> so uh, uh, <laughs> you asked me before uh, what what I say. So I mean, I, I'm just going to say uh, 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 "Playing by Heart," 1998, uh, a movie that almost nobody's heard of. Uh, Angelina Jolie, uh, Sean Connery, lots of famous people in there, and okay. nobody's heard of it. It's an amazing movie. Watch it. Perfect. Um, okay. Uh, Good. Mini series. I just watched Hulu. The Great. If you've seen it, no, I have Great. Okay. Uh, about uh, it's sort of a, a take on Catherine the Great, how she okay. got to be there. Uh, it's phenomenally funny. So oh, good, absolutely good. worth. Excellent. Well, they, people seem to love these recommendations, so we'll go with them. All right. Uh, before I turn to questions, Bert, I'm looking at this uh, uh, table that I have from I think it's the the Nobel uh, laureate's guide to tough problems, and when I see this list of problems, it's much broader than climate yeah. that you're looking at. You're effectively looking at uh, what's now known as the sustainable development goals, what used to be known as the millennial development goals, et cetera. The big topics lines up with my own uh, topic that I teach about uh, at Harvard called humanity and its challenges. These are grand challenges that affect everyone on the planet. And when I look at sort of the return for dollar invested that I see that your tables here have, trade and economic sort of openness is really high with great return. Health, 
very high migration and allowing migration to take place, letting people go to where there are opportunities and their, their uh, human talent can get valued and, and sort of expressed, very high. Food security, net nutrition, very high. Not that climate change isn't on here, it is, biodiversity is other things, but help us make sense of prioritization because I think that yep. ultimately is one of your main messages. So one of the things I did after having written Skeptical Environmentalist was uh, I, I, I made sort of a very, back then we talked a lot about the Kyoto Protocol. Um, <clears throat> turned out the Kyoto Protocol would cost $180 billion a year uh, for the world. Uh, and turned out that that's the same number that it would cost in one year, $180 billion to give everybody on the planet clean drinking water and sanitation. And I thought, isn't that, that's that sort of surprising thing, isn't, isn't that surprising that we think we want to make the world better and we're going to spend $180 billion a year on something that will do virtually nothing in 100 years instead of just spending one year on that and fixing one of the big problems in the world? And I use that as an argument. It was just because those two numbers happened to uh, you know, uh, align. But then I said, well, surely we should have a sense of where can you actually spend money and do the most good? Surely somebody must have done it. It turns out nobody had. And that's why I, I did the, uh, uh, so that's my day job now, uh, the Copenhagen Consensus, where we work with seven uh, of the world's uh, uh, Nobel laureates uh, in economics, uh, more than 300 of the world's top climate, uh, sorry, economists across a wide range of areas to say, all right, where can you spend a dollar? Typically that's a real dollar and then deliver benefits to humanity. That's both economic benefits, it's social benefits that people don't die or they don't get sick, yeah. their kids don't die, and environmental benefits that they don't lose wetlands or they get less air pollution or they you know, fix some of climate change. If you try to add up all of that, you can basically say for every dollar spent, how much good do you do? And that's the list that you were just talking about there. Uh, you, know, you might wanna share this. We have a big book, but this is the short version for, for, for politicians uh, that just shows <laughs> Uh, it just shows these are all the things we investigated. And for each one of them, there's a cost benefit analysis. And then it shows the line here says for each dollar spent, you'll get this many dollars. There's actually, you know, it should go way out here. But basically what it says is do the long lines for humanity. So what, what you were talking about, you know, free trade is one of the things that lifted people out of poverty, not just a few people, but billions of people out of poverty. If we got a uh, better free trade agreement. So basically Doha, uh, which we've kind of given up on. Uh, but if we'd managed to do that, it would probably make each person in the developing world about $1,000 richer per person per year in 2030. How amazing would that be? The cost would be to pay off, especially rich Western farmers who don't want this, and you know, quite a number of other people who have special interest in this game. But the fundamental point is at very low cost, we could generate an immense achievement for the world. That's also one of the things, one of the reasons why a climate a carbon tariff could be a really terrible outcome for the world. Uh, and there's lots of other things. You mentioned nutrition. Uh, you know, so one of the things people don't recognize is nutrition is probably one of the best ways to get good education. So most kids in the developing world go into terrible schools. You could try to make those schools better, but that turns out to be really, really hard because you'll pay more for teachers, but you just get people, the same people to take more money. It's really hard. India has done this and they haven't succeeded very well. But there's something else you can do if you get better nutrition to small kids. We know that that develops their brain more. They become more 
uh, 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 more interested in learning, they become better, they get to school, even if it's a crappy school, they learn a lot more. And when they come out, they become more productive. And we estimate that over their lifetime, they will, each one of them, make about $4,000 more. But because it only costs $100 to give them this food on average, you've actually done $40 of good for every dollar you spent. That's an amazing achievement. And we know this very well. We know we can do this. And so one of our advices to governments around the world is spend some money on getting good food in the first two years of kids. It's yep. an incredibly good investment. So what we do is across the whole range of areas, we try to look at that. One of the things, of course, is climate change. And yes, investment in R&D turns out to be a pretty good investment. You can get $11 back on the dollar. But much of what we do, so you know, the Paris Agreement delivers about 10 cents back on the dollar. That's a terrible deal when you could have done $100 or $1,000 of good with each dollar spent. So we're basically the guys who says, if you're going to spend money on doing good in the world, don't you want to do it where it really matters a lot? So sure. you know, this is advice yeah. to every philanthropist and Bill Gates and uh, you know USAID and everybody else. Sure. So it's it's perfect segue to another question I have here, uh, which is okay. So what is your opinion of the Biden administration? Has your policy opinion, particularly these types of allocations, meaningfully changed since the pandemic spurred a fiscal super cycle with investments authorized or being authorized in infrastructure, industrial policy, R&D, and a whole bunch of other things? Can't climate policy be advanced along with other priority areas so that our societies actually get richer and middle classes get larger on the back of a new growth engine? So there, there's a lot of sort of sub-questions in, in, in that question. Uh, I think there's there's two parts uh, to that to that question. Of course, we can do many things. We're an advanced civilization. We can walk into gum at the same time. Uh, I think it's important to say what we do is we analyze where can dollars be spent to do the most good for humanity. That's typically not in the U.S. That is, you know, in poor countries where people are dying because they don't get, uh, you know, medic medication that would cost a couple of dollars. That's not the case in most rich countries, certainly not the case in the U.S. We haven't done this analysis for the U.S., so I don't know, and I wouldn't presume to know, what are the smart investments in the U.S. I also think, in some ways, this is what democracies is about. You know, uh, you have a democratic conversation, you decide, we're going to spend our money here. Uh, and, and much, in rich countries at least, is more of a distributional issue. Uh, which is not something economists have very much to say about. It's some groups that get money from other groups. And, and obviously that's you know, incredibly politically fraught, but it's not an optimization issue. But within that question, shouldn't we do all these things that Biden do, uh, uh, talks about? And, and wouldn't that be good also to fix climate change? Sort of a standard trope for, for economists is to say, if you want to fix one thing, do one thing. If you want to fix two things, use two instruments. If you want to fix three things, use three instruments. Don't try to make one instrument fix three things. Typically, that means you do it really badly in all three. And what I hear a lot of people say is we should invest across a wide range of areas, which is basically just sort of, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, pork barrel uh, was okay. what it used to be called, at least in the US. It's obviously very politically popular, but what you basically end up as, you know, addressing a lot of, uh, 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 of special interests, often fairly ineffectively and not in a smart way. So again, let me just show you for the climate bit. Uh, fundamentally, my argument is if you do 
research and development, it's much easier to get people to accept the outcome. And let me give you a metaphor. If you look back in Los Angeles in the 1950s, it was terribly polluted, yep. mostly because of lots of cars with no uh, you know, sort of emission reduction. Uh, one way of fixing uh, Los Angeles in the 1950s, and yeah, some people actually advocated this, certainly our current day way of thinking about it would be to tell all the uh, Los Angeles people, I'm sorry, could you, you know, stop that with the cars and start running or jogging or, or biking instead? Uh, and, and of course, they would have had absolutely no success. What did work was innovate a catalytic converter that costs a couple hundred dollars, you put it on the exhaust pipe, and then basically, wham, you fixed most of your problems. It, you can drive much longer, pollute much less. You know, I'm not saying Los Angeles is perfect and there's still a lot of other problems, but it fixed most of the air pollution problem in Los Angeles. You can do it the hard way by telling people don't do stuff. Or you can do it the easy way by fixing a technological way to make it much cheaper. It'll still have a cost. And that's what we need to do on climate. If yeah. we could innovate a technology to be cheaper than fossil fuels, we'd have fixed the problem. Yeah. If we don't, we will have to convince everyone in the world, and remember, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans. Africa is going to be 2 billion people by the end of the century, and they are in much bigger uh, push to get development than fixing uh, uh, climate change. We are going to convince all of them to not use the cheapest form of energy, and of course, we're going to fail. So we need to focus on technology, and that's the real point. Biden is suggesting let's do everything, and that's wonderful. Uh, you know, it'll also leave you with with a one point eight trillion dollar gap. <laughs> but 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 you know, the the real point is, if you want to do something, there are some things that are incredibly effective. For instance, invest more in research and development. Biden is saying that that's wonderful. Please do that. He's also saying let's give twelve thousand five hundred dollars to every person who buys an electric car. Remember, electric cars will likely be one of the least effective ways to cut carbon emissions. It costs a couple of thousand dollars per ton, avoid it. It's a terrible way to do this. And it actually, most places in the US, increase air pollution because you still use so much from, uh, from, uh, from uh, 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 fossil fuels. So the, again, it's not absolutely dumb, but it's close to being absolutely dumb. And so again, do the smart stuff. Don't do the dumb stuff. It's really not rocket science. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. One of the things when you raise this idea of technology as being uh, a, a potential solution, I think of, you know, Silicon Valley does a good job at solving lots of problems. And so climate change is a problem and sort of, well, so why couldn't they solve this problem? And in fact, you know, I think, Bjorn, you talk about uh, what happened going back to the Philippines with a, but not a hurricane, but with a volcano there, right? Um, and yep. uh, this was 1991, I think, Mount- yes. uh, Mount yeah. Pinatumbo. Uh, and, and so, but for 18 months after this volcano exploded, the earth's temperature fell by what, 1.5 degrees yeah. or something yeah. like that. And so you're saying this is inspiring technologists at this point. Yes. So yes. talk about so, geoengineering a little bit. So do you, so there, there's a number of, I, I make five suggestions on how we fix climate change. A carbon tax is an elegant and smart way to fix it, but you need to recognize it's very politically divisive, especially in the US. It's unlikely we're gonna to manage to do it well. We should still try and do it, but this is not the main way to fix it. Then research and development, as I talked about, but you also need to accept adaptation is gonna be an important part of, and then as you talk about geoengineering. So geoengineering 
is a way to basically put up a little bit of shade for the sun. If we could just shade the sun a little bit, we would have fixed global warming. And as you mentioned, we know nature does that occasionally with you know big volcanoes like uh, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991. It spewed up so much sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, the high uh, layer around the world, that it basically put a little bit of sunscreen on the world and lowered the temperatures. We can do that artificially and basically fix all of global warming at very low cost. Now, I'm not saying we should, let's just go out and do that, partly because we haven't investigated this, partly because a lot of people would feel very uncomfortable. We need to have a, a, a conversation about that. We need to look into, could there be some really downsides to doing this? But fundamentally, we need to recognize that this is the only way that we can buy ourselves an insurance policy. A lot of people talk about climate change policy as insurance. It's not. It's a reduction in damages, but it doesn't actually give you an insurance if something really bad happens. What we could do is geoengineering. We need to have that as a backup policy. And this is potentially very cheap way. So we, we, we find one way you could do that is by marine cloud whitening. We know that this happens uh, when you have uh, diesel powered boats uh, out on the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they spew up their diesel uh, particulates and they actually condense clouds that then become whiter and hence uh, reflect more. So you can actually see these contrails on, 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 uh, on satellite photos. If you did this with sea salt, which is the main uh, 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 part of, of, uh, of uh, particulates in the, in the atmosphere over big oceans, you could actually make the planet a little whiter, hence reflect a little more sunlight, cool it off. You could avoid all of global warming in the 21st century for about $10 billion. That's incredibly cheap. You know, it's a you know, thousand or 10,000 times cheaper than anything else anyone talks about. Again, the fact that we're not talking about this shows you that this is more of a political conversation. Of course, a lot of people feel that's a little bit like bypass operation for people who've been eating too much at McDonald's. Yep. And, and it has some truth to it. But it's also, it's weird that you would say, you know what, you've been eating so much at McDonald's, you shouldn't get a bypass, you should die to yeah. teach you a lesson. No, that, that's not how the world works, right? Yeah. So again, let's be smart about this and think about what you could do. The last, sorry, I'm just going to mention very briefly, the last one is make people richer. If yeah. you actually make people in the Philippines uh, get out of poverty, get out of you know, the corrugated roof, they will be much more resilient in so many ways. Many of them have nothing to do with climate, just simply their kids can afford better healthcare and better education, but they'll also be much safer from climate. Yeah, no, well, we were, you know, it's interesting because two things I was going to just quickly raise here in the limited time we have here. Number one, you talk about cities also, right? I mean, cities is get, getting white roofs, getting sort of, you know, sort of simple things that could have meaningful impacts to reduce temperature in dense areas. So most people are going to live in cities by the end of the century. Cities are much warmer than the surrounding countryside because there's lots of asphalt, lots of uh, infrastructure bunched up together. If you make white roofs, you can reduce temperatures dramatically, much more than you can with any realistic climate policy. But it feels like it's not, you know, it's, it's again, it's not this sacrificial uh, way of, of we, it's got to hurt for really do something good for climate. No, it's actually a real nice, simple techno fix. Again, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do other stuff, but it's a simple way to do it. And remember what happens when you then start talking about, we should have white roofs. Most people then go, no, we should have green roofs because yeah. they look much, much better on TV. And, you know, they make for a wonderful place. If, you know, I, <laughs> I wanted to go up there in the afternoon. And, and But the problem is, 
those are three to five times more costly and they are actually slightly less effective. So what you see is, and, and this is you know, this repeated story of, of all problems uh, and all problem solving in the world, you end up with people taking over and saying, no, I'd like to siphon off most of the benefits to get something that fits me better and that makes for a better uh, a TV story, but unfortunately it doesn't work nearly as well. Yeah, and it's funny because you, you talk about how economics matters a lot and some of these other issues such as disease. And some of the folks I've read introduce those two together and tie them to climate. So for instance, uh, and, and this may be the last topic then we'll try to summarize during, but you know, a lot of people have said malaria is tied to temperature and malaria and therefore certain cities, I mean, I've, I've traveled to Latin America, Africa, et cetera, whether it's Kenya, whether it's even, uh, I think in Bogota, some, the, the theory is they settled up high because there were fewer mosquitoes, therefore less disease, et cetera. Um, but I think some of the data says stuff differently around this. And I'm tying it back to your idea that economic growth really yes. can help alleviate. So, so again, it has slight plausibility, which of course is why this is, this is come into its own that because of global warming, there'll be more warm places and hence there'll be more places where mosquitoes uh, 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 transmit uh, uh, malaria and many other uh, dangerous diseases. Uh, the, the two important points to recognize is, you know, there was terrible amounts of, of uh, 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 malaria, for instance, in Archangel in, in, in you know, Russian seaport up in the Arctic Ocean and plenty of other places. That malaria is not predominantly a disease of tropics. Malaria is a disease of development. If you're poor, you get malaria. Lots and lots of people in the US got malaria before you know, 1930s, especially uh, in poor areas in, in the US because you couldn't afford a screen, you couldn't afford you know, proper protection, you had lots of marshy areas around you, that kind of thing. Much of this goes away with development. That's why we fixed most of malaria in the rich world. And now it looks like it's just a tropical problem. There is a bit of tropical issue here. But again, the question is, all right, so do you want to save people with malaria from malaria by slightly changing the temperature in 100 years? Or do you want to make them rich so they don't get malaria? You know, people don't get malaria in Singapore because they're rich. They do get it right next door where they're not rich. So again, the, uh, the whole idea is to recognize if you want to do something that's effective, it's about making sure, obviously, there are smarter ways than just getting people rich because that, that, that has its own set of problems. Of how do you do that and all that? But yeah. you can get them mosquito nets. You can get them uh, spraying. You can get them uh, 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 tracking. There's lots of different things that are very, very simple and that we know works. And you can actually make uh, sure it happens. And then in the long run, if you want to help people, please make sure that they get out of poverty. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have to squeeze in this last question because I think this person is really a, a quite interesting question. Bjorn, there seems to be a, a global devotion, religious-like, if you will, towards investment dollars flowing towards uh, ESG, environmental, uh, sustainable, or governance-focused uh, enterprises. Uh, if capital flows in that direction, uh, A, do you think the capital will continue to flow in that direction? But is it also appropriate for, right, companies like 
electric vehicle companies are attracting a lot of capital, but is this misallocated capital? Is this, are we becoming unsustainable with this sort of sustainable label, if you will? So effectively, is there an ESG bubble is the bottom line question that was asked. That's hard to know because again, it depends on how many other people are willing to jump on that bandwagon. You know, if you can keep the pyramid scheme going, it's not a bad deal to to invest in. Uh, But fundamentally, there's something wrong about the way that we invest in stuff that's typically tied to what feels good right now, rather than what has really great return for humanity. Uh, so as you mentioned, you know, we uh, we focus a lot on electric cars and we focus a lot of, on, you know, one of the things that blow my mind is uh, we're, we're paying people to fish up, uh, you know, uh, plastic bottles in the Pacific. And, you know, yes, in a perfect world, I want the Pacific to be without plastic bottles, but given that there is, you know, uh, a million and a half people that die from tuberculosis every year. And there are so many other people that are so much worse affected and you can help so much more effectively, very, very easily. Why are we not focusing on that first? So again, my point is to say, if you wanna do good, spend money where it will actually do a lot of good before you start thinking, oh, I should do what's uh, uh, fashionable. The last bit, and that goes back to the point of, you know, use one tool to achieve one policy goal. A lot of people will tell you, oh, you can actually get rich as well as do good when you invest in ESG. Uh, but the reality, of course, is uh, if if you can do that, great, you should just go ahead with it, but you shouldn't, then the argument shouldn't be that you're trying to do this to do good in the world. You're just simply doing this because it gets you rich. But if you can do, and there's a lot of things that seem to indicate that this is a bubble in that way, and in the long run, you'll probably do better by investing in lots of other companies as well, then what you should do is invest 99% of your wealth in just making lots and lots of money, and then spend the last percent on the best stuff that doesn't give you any money back, but just, you know, helps people with malaria or with nutrition, small kids or free trade or all the other things that really matter. And of course you can, you know, there's nothing magical about 99.1. You know, I'd love you to do 90.10 instead. But, you know, the whole point here is to recognize that's a much better way. And there's good reason to believe that that'll actually end up doing both more good for your bottom line and more good for the world. Yeah. So, so Piran, we're run, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you. And I'm just going to summarize. And please correct me. You're, uh, I, I'm, I'm just a, a student reading here, so to say. But the book "False False Alarm" fabulous. I really do encourage everyone to uh, to read it. During the summary, I take away was look, focus on economic growth because that's going to make a lot of things better. Think in terms of cost benefits because cost benefit analysis will help us choose what to prioritize, when, where, how, and maximize the benefits we can get, assuming we have limited resources. Um, Three, let's actually invest in R&D to help create new technologies, innovations that will make it economically viable to say solar is what we should do. People will do solar because it's cheaper, better, more reliable, not because people are telling them to do solar when there's a more reliable other option. Also be prepared to adapt. We humans adapt, uh, the environment changes, we should have the ability to adapt. And, and you know, we have plenty of people currently in the world living below sea level. So, you know, we talk about sea level rise, which we didn't get to, or talk about polar bears, which we didn't get to, uh, but you know, we can adapt. Um, and then lastly, this whole geoengineering concept, which is, you know, we should actually uh, spend some effort developing energies uh, that can, by that insurance policy effectively. Can can I just- Yeah, please add, I'm gonna say, please add uh, a final word. Because 
it's all right. Uh, but but I think it's important to say first, global warming is a real problem and something that we should fix. This has become a very sort of religious: are you denier or are you you know with uh, uh, with the truth? It is a real problem. But it's not the end of the world. That's the second point. And I think that is incredibly important to tell kids and everybody else. This is a problem, you know, in the big scheme of things, a fairly small problem compared to most other problems. Let's make sure we treat it that way. Not the end of the world, but a problem. And that's why we can then start talking about, so how do we fix this real problem, but this manageable problem? We fix it smartly, but we also recognize there are lots and lots of other, other issues. So I think those things also help in a conversation with people who are very, very worried about global warming to get them to realize this is not against your position, but this is about being smarter about your position, which is also presumably to actually make sure the world is better by the end of the century. Sure, fabulous. Bjorn, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the work you've done. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify.